electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Evans, and here's what's ahead. Are we slowing or are we growing? Jobless claims still super strong, but the inverted yield curve, if you haven't seen it, hitting a new multi-year extreme today. So which set of data do you believe and invest on? We'll pose that question to our market guest. And proxy fight over. Nelson Peltz bowing out of the battle for Disney's boardroom now that Iger's back at the helm with plans to right the ship. So is it smooth sailing for Disney from here? We'll discuss. And J.B. Straubel live for a first on CNBC interview. The Tesla co-founder and Redwood CEO securing billions from the Department of Energy to hasten development of EV batteries here. We're very excited for all of that. But first, let's get to today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. It's lost some steam. It looked like it was going to be solid to the upside, Kelly. But now, as you can see, it's red across the board. Uh, Just to give you an idea, at 4112 for the S&P 500, At the highs of the session, we were actually up 39 handles. That's a pretty significant move on a basis of around 4,000. And then down 13 at the low. So, again, tilting towards the low part of that session. The Dow Industrial is down about two-tenths of 1%, 33,882. The Nasdaq Composite down about the similar percentage amount, about 13 points, 11,897. But remember, earlier on in the session, that tech-heavier Nasdaq was seeing some real signs of life. So, again, slowing momentum in the markets. We'll see if that carries through towards the closing bell. One place to keep a close eye on thematically, a lot of earnings reports today and yesterday that are tilting towards the consumer trade in various aspects. On the consumer staple side, PepsiCo out with stronger than expected results and a new share buyback, or at least an an announcement about buying back about a billion more of their own own stock expectations for it in the coming year, a 10 percent boost to their dividend. Kellogg comes out with results as well that were better than expected, although the stock's off about a half a percent. Hilton Worldwide strong, Ralph Lauren, Mattel from after the bell yesterday down 10 percent because people spent less on toys during the holiday shopping season. So keep an eye on some of those consumer stocks, thematically speaking. And then speaking of the consumer, if you're in buy now, pay later, this has been a rough day for certain stocks like Affirm Holdings, which has lost about a fifth of its value. And again, this was a $176 stock at the highs back in 2021. It's now $12 and change at this point here. Affirm coming out with what's being viewed as a more disappointing earnings result coming out yesterday. And taking a look at the overall scheme for some of these rising interest rates, Kelly, maybe plays a part in some of that consumer trade and maybe has a factor in some of these buy now, pay later stocks. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, thank you very much. The bond market flashing a major recession warning with the 210 spread, the most inverted in over four decades. But then there are jobless claims, which are still near all-time lows. So as an investor, which data points matter more? Let's ask Keith Fitzgerald. He's the principal uh, of Keith Fitzgerald Group. Did I have that right? I think Fitzgerald Group principal, Keith. I'm so sorry. Welcome. It's good to see you again. No worries. I also go by, hey, you, or oh, no, it's him again. So that was close (laughs) enough. Well, we're thrilled you're here to weigh in on this big debate everyone's having over the data. And listen, from my point of view, it seems like the bond market's always leading, the job market's always lagging, and that's a worrisome sign. But you've had much more experience. What do you think is going on here? 
Well, I tell you, I would increasingly go with the jobs markets, and here's why. Bonds are a hypothetical construct based on fear of interest rates or changes. Jobs are very real. What that tells you when you get to the real part is that companies still need more workers to keep up with demand. Now, granted, the composition is that is shifting from tech to hospitality, but it's a real number nonetheless. So I'm going to go with jobs every single day of the week. I don't care about the academic argument, recession or not. I think the Fed's got it wrong. Those models are busted. CEOs, on the other hand, particularly like Pepsi, they're getting it right. So we'll get into definitely uh, some of the stocks that you like here, because actually Tesla is one of them, which a lot of people will find interesting. But one more question about the labor market. I also, <laughs> in a way, wonder how much better can it get from here, right? Are we just going to stay at these historic levels of jobless claims? Are we going to stay at record low unemployment? It seems like the only way to go from here is worse. And then wouldn't you want to be fading that, you know, from the market's point of view? Inevitably, I don't think it can get any better. Well, instinctively, of course, you're going to want to fade it because that's what your guts are telling you. But what we also know from research and a huge body of history is that the markets have an upside bias. You find treasure at the bottom of the ocean, and typically that's what happens when the markets drop. So if you're sticking with the right companies, the brand names, the CEOs who are moving forward, I would submit over time that's the better and arguably the more profitable play. Well, as we often know, you can kind of get the macro right or wrong, but still uh, make plenty of money if you're in the right trades. For instance, Tesla, you know, you stuck your neck out on this uh, just at the right time. You still a fan of the stock? Oh, absolutely. I think this thing is just getting started. Anybody betting against Elon Musk, whether they like him or not, that's moot. But anybody betting against Elon Musk today might as well have been betting against Steve Jobs back in the day. We know how this is going to play out. He unleashes just incredible transformation in every industry he touches. He's not getting stopped anytime soon. He's got enough money to do what he wants. He's got a clear vision. I'm very excited. I think it goes back to 300 a lot quicker than people think. Let's talk about that for a moment, because a lot of investors the last couple of years have learned that it doesn't just matter if you like or don't like a stock. It matters where you entry and where you exit. Why not take the profits now? Why say I'm staying in this till 300? And would you really not get out at 250 or 270 or 280 if we get up there? Well, every investor is different, of course, and that depends on what your unique risk tolerances are, your profit objectives, et cetera. I'm a big fan of when you have a double, you take half off and you let the remaining shares run for free because now you've paid for your initial investment, you're still in the game, and you can continue to add more later if you want. So it's not a question of all or nothing, Kelly. You know, Take some money off the table if that makes you feel good, let you sleep better at night. Nothing wrong with that strategy whatsoever. How does that get you to a Pepsi, to a Lockheed Martin, which seem like the more traditional names we might hear? from. Again, that's why I highlight Tesla, because I think it's a much more provocative one. Pepsi had earnings this morning, stocks up 1%. Lockheed, obviously, defense has been doing pretty well lately. Why those two? There's a different scheme in every stock. They've got different signatures, if you will. Pepsi and Lockheed, to me, are all about stability and ongoing demand. People like their soft drinks. They like their snacks. Pepsi is a solid company with great management, solid consumer demand capable of handling inflation. So that's why I like that particular name. Lockheed Martin is a similar vein of thought, but slightly different. The world is a very complicated place right now. U.S. defense stores munitions are down considerably. And, you know, you can argue about the politics of that. But again, I like to stick with the real numbers. And what I know is that we're going to have to replenish all of that. And that's great for a company like Lockheed Martin. All right, Keith, stay with me, if you will. I want to bring in uh, sort of a, a counterpart here. We're talking about jobs data versus yield curve. You're taking the jobs data. But Rick Santelli, covers bonds for a living. He's got the results of the 30-year right now as well. Rick, how'd it go over? It went exactly the opposite of yesterday's 10-year. I give this auction a dog minus, hmm. a D minus. Did not go well. Let's go through the internals. 21 billion 30-year bonds. The one issue market 
was trading 3.654 right before 1 o'clock Eastern. The yield, though, at this Dutch auction was 3.686. It tailed over three basis points. Higher yield, lower price. You don't want to sell into lower price structure. Pretty much every metric was weaker than 10 auction average. One that really stuck out, other than direct bidders, slightly higher, but one that stuck out. We always like to talk about the buffet table when you have an auction. That's the dealers. They get to take whatever the leftovers are. In this case, the leftovers were just shy of 16%. 10 auction average is 12%. That was the highest take by dealers since April of last year. Uh, in the end, uh, this auction did not go well, and I think... A lot of that has to do with the notion that many traders are starting to rethink how much time we're going to be spending with rates firming up a bit. Hmm. And especially with that inverted yield curve, it does start to get a bit confusing. Rick, what do you say to the Keith Fitzgeralds of the world and Mike Faroli, who has researched today, saying this time is different. The yield curve is not necessarily signaling recession. He says it appears it's driven by the expected decline in inflation. Can we, can we throw this out and no longer matters as a leading indicator? Well, embedded in your question is the answer, okay? Inflation's going to drop. I agree with that. That is one of the driving forces. I also think that the notion of how this curve is inverted speaks volumes about the long-range forecasts of the Treasury market looking for major weakness. And I will just suffice it to say that you could look at the jobs data, and indeed it was strong, but I would prefer to consider trying to relate all the COVID experiences we have. And in my opinion, whether it was people retiring, coming back in the workforce, government programs that kept people out of the workforce, or notions of, you know, childcare, a variety of issues. But in my opinion, I still think we're going to see a recession. I think the yield curves are right. And I'm not a huge believer in yield curves, but in this instance, I think it's right. And I think that the relationship between what's left of the strong labor market and what the Federal Reserve thinks the labor market does to prices is incorrectly correlated. All right, we got to go, Keith. Quick, quick last word. Rick's a genius, love his work, but I am respectfully going to take the other side of that coin and stick with the jobs. All right, we're going to have to have a brawl, a good old-fashioned bull bear <laughs> debate on this another time. Gentlemen, thank you both, Keith Fitzgerald and Rick Santelli. We really appreciate it. Let's turn now to Disney, a made-for-TV moment this morning. Activist investor Nelson Peltz telling CNBC his proxy fight is over after hearing what CEO Bob Iger told our David Faber in an interview. Here's what Iger said on the issue of cost-cutting, which was a big part of the reason Peltz got involved. Listen. It created a, a huge divide between the creative side of the company, the content engines, movies and television, and the monetization and distribution side of the company. And while I think he, again, he had you know, certain maybe valid reasons why he wanted to do that at that time, it was very, very apparent to me, both while I was out and when I came back, that that was a mistake. Well, let's get some reaction now and what it means for the shares in the broader streaming landscape. David Faber joins us along with Laura Martin, senior media analyst at Needham. Welcome to you both. David, wow. That's, uh, wh what else do you think you would add for investors who are now trying to figure out if the dust has settled here? Well, it, you know, I think it's far, far from settled. Sorry, um, Kelly, in terms of exactly how they execute on all of those cost cuts. Uh, obviously, Mr. Iger was talking about his predecessor, Bob Chapek, in that answer that we just listened to, of course, and the decision they've made to reorganize the company and have those who run entertainment, ESPN and Parks be a lot closer to all the content that's created as well, 
by those divisions and much closer to the P&Ls, which Iger obviously, as he said, thought was a mistake. But in terms of executing here in particular, how you cut $3 billion in content, non-sports related content spend, that's going to be interesting to watch. You know, True. do you simply try and get a lot of directors to get paid less? Do you cut technology spend? It's, it, you know, it's something that's going to take time, but uh, it is certainly something that is underway. And as you said, Kelly, of course, it's not often that we get those made-for-TV moments. I Amazing. only wish I kept Iger in the chair just a little bit longer to react <laughs> when Peltz came on with Jim Cramer and said, I'm dropping my proxy fight. Sure, I didn't think about that. I didn't, but listen, let's not, it was amazing. Laura, you have a hold on the stock. What are, why not a buy? What are the remaining questions you need answered? So we downgraded this at 111 in 2018, and it's still 111. So I think the, I think the whole streaming um, entry has cost Disney a lot of money, and it cost him the dividend. And I think the most important thing I heard yesterday is that he's going to look at bringing the dividend back modestly and then growing it over time. I think that's really important, in addition to the cost cutting. It's what's interesting to me is that Facebook was up like 20% on cost cutting, and Disney's up seven. Now mm. it's up two. So really, in these stocks, cost cutting doesn't seem to be as big a um, an issue is is positive for these stocks as it is for like the big tech stocks. True, and maybe that what David said. You know exactly how are they going to get there in a way that doesn't undermine the company. Laura, what are the implications for the rest of the media and streaming stocks? Let's famously remind everybody about your call that Netflix should add that ad-supported tier, while Disney's kind of gone the other way by by raising prices. What 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 is the ripple effect throughout your coverage universe? I think the most important thing is that we're getting um, economic discipline back into the stream assets, the companies that have streaming in them. So I think it's really smart that Bob is saying, hey, we just raised prices 30% and we didn't, we saw minimal turn on Disney Plus. Sounds to me like he'll take another price increase. Netflix is raising prices. And Bob's also saying, hey, we're going to cut $3 billion out of, let's call it, non-sports content, but also we're going to get rid of the general entertainment business. We're going to go out of the business of competing with Netflix. Hmm. We're only going to drive IP around Marvel or Princesses or Star Wars, something that is our franchise base. That's, That's smart because you have pricing power and you, and you can differentiate yourself. That's a really interesting point. David, same question. What do you think the implications are going to be as everyone kind of digests what just happened uh, in the past 24 hours? Yeah, well, listen, I think one of the key things that came out of our interview this morning that was not discussed at all on the conference call was Hulu and the future of that asset. And to the point that uh, Laura just made and their focus on franchises and not general entertainment, I, I think we may have time, Kelly, but Mr. Iger did make news because it seems a lot clearer now that just buying in what they don't own of that asset. Remember, our parent company, Comcast, owns 33 percent of Hulu. Mm -hmm. That is no longer assured at all. Can I just add one Everything's thing? on the table right now. So I'm what not going to I'm not going to speculate about whether we're a buyer or a seller of it. But I, I obviously have suggested that um, I'm concerned about undifferentiated general entertainment and in the particularly in the competitive landscape that we're operating in. And we're going to look at it very objectively so and expansively. Uh, uh, if there is an uh, if there's an opportunity, for example, then to potentially sell your interest to Comcast, if Brian Roberts were interested, that's a conversation You're you would have. Being witness there a little bit, I said we're open minded. We will be open minded. I just want to make sure because I think the assumption has been that you guys will buy what you don't already own of Hulu. And I think I'm suggesting that isn't necessarily the case. David. Yeah, well, I'd love to hear what Laura's thoughts are. I don't know who the potential buyers of Hulu are. Do you? Would you applaud that or or not? 
You know, I wouldn't, but I want to bring a more controversial thing into the conversation, which is he's he's going to spin off at ESPN into a separate reporting category. And he said specifically on the call, we are not looking to sell ESPN. So I think the most interesting question is, why are we breaking out ESPN for the first time in the 20 years I've covered this company and making it more visible? I think he might be looking for a partial investor here, either for cash you know, to buy 20, buy 15% of ESPN, which would be a big number, I think. Or he goes to the NFL or some of the leagues and says, why don't you take a 10% equity play, which would guarantee them access to football, professional right. football rights, and it would lower their price. I think that's an interesting thing no one's writing about. David? Uh, you know, he didn't indicate any any interest in doing that, Laura, at least not during the course of the call or our interview. He seems committed to that business and the Right now, at least, the linear cable universe in which it sits. What he did say was that over time, he does see it becoming an over-the-top product. What the economics of that look like, of course, are very important, given the ever-escalating cost of sports rights, particularly, as you said, the NFL, where they're signed up for 10 years. But then the NBA, which, again, Iger made it clear to me, Kelly, I think they're going to compete for it, would seem. They're paying about $1.4 billion now a year, that's going to go up substantially. Absolutely. One of the last big deals. I don't want the fun to stop. Let's get Nelson Peltz on the phone now, David. Ask him, what does he think about Laura's idea about this ESPN co-investor? They could get some cash. I really love it. Thank you guys both for your time today. Again, David, excellent stuff. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Our David Faber and Laura Martin of Needham. Coming up, inflation is falling and the unemployment rate is at the lowest level since the 50s. Is a soft landing really within sight? ZipRecruiter's chief economist insists the answer is yes, and she'll join us next to make her case. Plus, can Lyft repeat Uber's earnings beat? That name and more coming up in today's earnings exchange. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at the markets. Like Dom said, uh, we saw moves to the downside. Those are week-to-date figures, by the way. Uh, the Dow right now is down 77 points. 10-year still around 360 after that kind of lousy 30-year auction. We're back after this. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Is small business the key to the strong labor market? Despite a wave of layoffs in high-profile big tech companies, a new CNBC survey finds that nearly a third of small business owners still can't find the workers they need, with roles going unfilled for at least three months. So how long can small business power the rest of the economy forward? Let's ask Julia Pollack. She's chief economist at ZipRecruiter. It's great to see you again, Julia. And you have sort of a, a sanguine, more sanguine view of how uh, well the labor market can keep doing here. Do tell. 
Well, there's a big disconnect between the headlines and between the data. Uh, if you look at what's really happening with layoffs, uh, 2022 was the year on record with the smallest number of layoffs. Layoffs are only above average in three sectors, tech, finance, and trucking. Uh, but elsewhere in the economy, they are way, way below normal levels. So that right now tells you what? I mean, I hear that and I go, well, not sustainable. Hammer's about to fall. It's going to catch up with small biz and everybody else eventually. But how do you see it? Well, there are certainly risks ahead. I mean, investment has collapsed. Uh, business investment in home building, in uh, software development, in research and development, in equipment have all cooled substantially in response to the Fed's rate hikes. And we know that investment is necessary for this level of job growth to be sustainable. But the U.S. consumer can take us a pretty long way. I mean, if you've heard recent earnings calls like Uber's yesterday, they said, yeah, we're seeing businesses pull back, but the consumer is still so strong that the business is, is roaring. And that's what Main Street businesses are experiencing. Small businesses are seeing enormous numbers of customers come through the door. They can't keep up on the hiring front. And that means that they're still adding jobs just to fill their immediate business needs. And you guys have some access to this churn, to what's happening in the labor market, especially with these tech workers who have been laid off. And, and we're generally finding uh, work pretty quickly. I mean, are, is that still true? Is there anything in the recent weeks even that tells you that, there, that these uh, dynamics are changing? We conducted a survey of laid-off workers in January. We just closed it, and uh, those are workers who were hired, uh, who were laid off since July 1st. And the findings are quite striking. Uh, so, among those laid off uh, in the last six months, 42% have found new jobs that pay more than the jobs that laid them off. Wow! Uh, on average, they've found reemployment within about eight weeks. And so this is really the best time to be laid off. The labor market is still extremely tight and there are abundant opportunities. It's never good to be laid off. It always, uh, it always is, is, is a shock. Sure. Uh, most people who were laid off say that it was, it was a huge surprise to them. They didn't expect it. They didn't see it coming. Uh, but many are actually finding that they are coming out ahead. Oh, by the way, the anecdotes you hear from tech companies about how layoffs have happened for the most part are like, they're basically, they're, it's almost like a random number generator. So in many cases, they are letting highly skilled people go. And uh, I'm sure there's other firms who are desperate for talent who are thrilled to be able to have access to that. So do you think this is one of those kind of production recession but not employment recession kind of dynamics here? That is what it seems to what seems to be the case. You know, we still do have a shortfall in the labor market of about 3.5 million workers compared to the pre-pandemic trend, and you can't lay off what you haven't hired. Uh, many industries, many businesses, still have a staffing shortfall, and so they're in no hurry to let workers go. On the contrary, they're even retaining workers who are underperforming and trying to find other ways to motivate productivity, like improved management practices. Yeah. <laughs> the places we could go. Julia, thank you so much uh, for bringing that information to us. Uh, we always appreciate checking in with you. Take care. Thank you. Julia Pollack with ZipRecruiter. Still ahead, from co-founding Tesla to pioneering production of EV batteries here in the U.S., we'll speak with J.B. Straubel about ramping up the domestic supply chain and how he'll use the $2 billion loan they just announced from the Department of Energy. As we head to break, let's take a glance at the Dow heat map with Boeing and Walgreens, the worst performers today. Modest declines, though. Salesforce Disney leading the way. We just spoke about that. We'll have more on Salesforce in a moment. Uh, Dow in 87 points for the blue chips. The exchange is back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called 
writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back. Let's take a quick check on the markets. We started out strong today, turned negative, and Dow at least is trying to claw back into positive territory. NASDAQ is pretty close, only seven points away. It's been by far the strongest performer all year. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. Nicaragua has freed 222 political prisoners. Many are opponents of President Daniel Ortega and his authoritarian government. A plane carrying them landed in Washington earlier today. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says releasing the prisoners is a step toward addressing the country's human rights abuses. That opens the door to further dialogue with the U.S. House Republicans have made a formal request to Hunter Biden for records related to his business dealings. They're looking for evidence to back longstanding GOP accusations that the president's son tried to make money off of his father's political connections. A lawyer for Hunter Biden has refused the request, saying Congress lacked the authority to demand the records. And Colgate-Palmolive recalling nearly 5 million bottles of fabuloso cleaning products. The company says the affected bottles lacked a preservative and could allow certain bacteria to grow that could cause serious infections. The products were sold online and at major retailers, including Walmart and Dollar General. Not so fabuloso. Yikes, that's for sure. Tyler, thank you. We'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, three more names on deck with earnings that will all provide clues into the health of the consumer. We'll talk about Expedia, Lyft, and PayPal next. And during February, we're celebrating Black Heritage through the stories of some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is New Street Advisor CEO and CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo. So as a young black kid, the people that I looked up to when it came to, you know, look, focusing on my career path were one for sure, my dad, he's a lawyer um, and he's someone that always drove, uh, worked hard and was passionate about what he did, helping people in immigration law. When it came to finance, I was really intrigued by one of the books that I read, which was by Reginald Lewis and his story and his life uh, when it came to working in corporate America as a black professional. And those are some of the things that drove me, gave me motivation and inspiration to do what I do on a daily basis. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on PayPal, Lyft, and Expedia. And we'll start with Expedia, whose shares are up 35% over the past three months on that reopening. Travel demand resilient in the face of some macro headwinds. Can the positive momentum continue? Siva Modi has the story for us today. And Steve Grasso joins us with our trades. He's CEO of Grasso Global and a CB. And one of the few lucky men still working at home, Steve. Don't anger our entire audience who's trucking back and forth. I worked in this. I worked in the studio. I worked in the studio last night. You wanted me to do two days in a row? No, I wouldn't. I would never ask that. I would never. Uh, welcome to both of you. Seema, I'll start with you. What are you watching? 
Well, listen, Kelly, in the last 48 hours, we heard from two travel companies, Trivago, which said their consumer is trading down. In fact, in Europe, they're seeing customers uh, trade back from five days to four day trips. They're no longer going for that five star hotel. Instead, they're opting for a three to four star hotel. Whereas Hilton today said their revenue per available room uh, is exceeding pandemic levels for the second straight quarter. They're seeing very strong growth within luxury and their premium economy segment. So I think for Expedia, just given its breadth across hotels, lodging, vacation rentals, and airlines, we really want to understand whether the American consumer is starting to cut back on their travel budget. Now, uh, you know, China will obviously be a big topic. Expedia is much more of a North American pure play, just given its market share here in the U.S. compared to booking holdings and, and Airbnb. But it has been sort of allocating more capital towards advertising and marketing, not just here, but internationally as well. So the big question for CEO Peter Kern is, is that starting to pay off? The stock clearly expecting the this rebound in travel to continue up over 30% this year. Yeah, Steve, do you Expedia, you know, the travel names broadly speaking, do you like them here? I do. And when you think about uh, revenge travel that everyone keeps referring to, Kelly, when you when you look at discretionary spending for a consumer, the the needs versus wants, the top of the want list is always travel. So travel will always win out as long as you have a job and the employment situation in the country has been great. So Expedia, I expect to still pop. If you look at what Seema said, uh, a, a year ago, the for a year ago performance, the stock was down 40%. So even though it's rallied pretty recently, we've seen uh, analysts ratchet up their estimates, which is always a good sign as you lead into the print. So I think there's still a little more juice left in the tank for them. All right, uh, Seema, we appreciate it. We'll let you go. And a quick programming note, Expedia CEO Peter Kern will be on Tech Check tomorrow to discuss those results. 11 a.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it. We'll move on to Lyft. It's got a tough act to follow after Uber posted its strongest quarter ever, but the shares are already up 31% over the past month. Deirdre Bosa has the story here. Deirdre, man, that Uber earnings, by the way, with everything else going on that day, kind of flew under the radar, but wow, what a report. It did. Um, and that makes it even tougher for Lyft. You said it's up, what, more than 30 percent over the last month? Year to date, it's up some 50 percent, and that even beats Uber's performance. But remember, this is a stock trading at around $16 and change. That is about a fraction of what it went public at. It's $72 a share. Um, so it has fallen extremely far over the last few years. And really, there's concerns on the street that maybe it's losing market share to Uber. For example, just take the revenue expectations. It's expected to post revenue growth of 19 percent. How does that compare to Uber's revenue growth of more than 50% in the same quarter? Um, so it's going to be really important to look at things like active rider, revenue per rider, to see um, if Lyft is charging customers more to kind of make up for maybe a driver supply problem and longer wait times. And finally, Kelly, this is a company that has not diversified in the same way that its competitor Uber has. It has no food delivery business or not. A substantial one to speak of. True. Um, and it's gotten rid of a lot. So it does have bikes, though. How profitable is that? How big of a business does it make up? Not enough, most likely. And, you know, Lyft did talk about a food delivery business a few years ago, but we haven't seen it really shape into something substantial. Hmm. Are these Grasso favorites here, Steve? Well, you know, I think I think Deirdre nailed it. The the difference, though, is that Uber uh, has outperformed on an ongoing basis. Lyft is still right around its pandemic low. So just in sympathy, a stock could be down and up in sympathy. Lyft has been up in sympathy with Uber knocking the cover off the ball. 
best quarter, best margins. It's very hard act to follow, but never underestimate it's so bad it's good. I always want to be investing in the best of class. Best of class is Uber, Kelly. But if you look at the uh, look at the stock on a on a technical basis, you you're above all its moving averages, although it is starting to roll over huh. a little bit. You might get that's why I say hold this one. You don't have to go out and buy it. I wouldn't be a buyer of it, but I'm afraid to say sell it ahead of earnings because you could get that relief pop. All right. They will call that the yellow light. Uh, not a red, not a green. Uh, and we'll move on. Deirdre, <laughs> thank you very much. Let's turn to PayPal, whose earnings are out after the bell today. And investors want to see how they're handling a more challenging macro environment. Their payments volume was $337 billion last quarter, but with consumer spending seeing some headwinds a question is whether that will fall as well plus paypal has had a tough time keeping up with competition apple beta version of its buy now pay later product yesterday we saw obviously what happened with affirm today cost cutting measures as well also top of mind paypal cut seven percent of its global workforce just over a week ago steve i mean you know doing that a week before earnings can't have you feeling that positive or maybe these are cuts that need to happen what, what's your take on paypal here well, if you, if you look at the entire space, every time you announce any type of cuts, the stock usually rallies. So maybe they were looking at that, Kelly. I don't, I don't know. But I invite you and everyone to examine that chart. Go back to October of 2021. Why is that relevant? Because they wanted to buy, they were interested in buying Pinterest. If you're interested in buying in Pinterest, then it makes the investor think that your core business is out of organic growth. You're out of growth ideas. The stock has not looked good since that interest in buying Pinterest. Huh. So we're looking at a stock that trades a fraction of what it was back then. It was $270, $280. Sure. This one, I also say hold. This also a yellow light. So bad it's good. But I'm the least positive out of those three stocks. Expedia, positive, Lyft. Maybe uh, PayPal. I think you can maybe get a relief rally, but longer term, I think they're just out of growth ideas. I like what you hinted there, that they showed their hand when they went for that Pinterest bid, that it made everyone go, wait a minute. Are you, <laughs> if you think that's a good idea, maybe we have to think twice here. Steve, thank you so much. We appreciate all your time today. It's good to see you. Steve Grasso and all three companies, by the way, report right after the bell. Coming up, the Disney proxy fight may be over, but a fifth activist has just disclosed a stake in this tech company. We'll reveal it and what that implies next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. At the highs today, the Dow is up over 300 points, but we're now down about 100. S&P lower by a third. Same for the Nasdaq. And let's check on mega cap tech, where we've seen a lot of movement this week. Alphabet on pace, by the way, for its worst week since March of 2020. That's right. Where is it? Over here. Alphabet is down. Look at this. Almost 5% again today. It was down 8% yesterday. That's a 13% drop in two days, all going back to that MIFT AI launch uh, that they had for that Paris event yesterday. Amazon in the red today as well. Apple and Microsoft up fractionally. Now, new numbers show retail investors, speaking of AI, are rushing into these stocks. Inflows over the past five trading days at levels not seen in a couple of years. It's not really just Microsoft and Alphabet. A lot of the action is in some smaller names that have already seen big gains this year, like C3 AI, taking a bit of a breather today. $80 million of inflows in the past five days, and shares have more than doubled so far this year, although, again, they're down about 10% right now. Other names include Big Bear AI, market cap of just about 600 uh, 
million dollars, by the way. Look at this up seven folds just since Jan 1. Soundhound uh, has more than doubled. And NVIDIA as well, getting a lot of retail interest. 55% pop this year. For more on these names, go to cnbc.com slash pro. Now, that's where retail investors are putting their money. But as for institutions, Salesforce is a big name here. This was the mystery chart we teased before the break. Stock's up about 3% today. Dan Loeb's hedge fund third point becoming the fifth known investor, activist investor, to take a stake here. The others include Value Act Capital Partners, Elliott Management, Starboard Value, and Jeff Ubbins Inclusive Capital. And after being one of the worst Dow stocks in 2022, it's now the top Dow stock to start the year. Investors hoping uh, this activism pays off. It's already up 31%. Coming up, you've heard of Brick. Fang, Tina, but what about MIFT? They include some of the key components for electric vehicles. We'll tell you what they are and why they could be poised for a breakout next. Welcome back, everybody. Lithium stealing a lot of the spotlight when it comes to EVs, although there are a bunch of other metals that are also integral to production. And like Fang and Brick, they have an acronym, so you know they've officially arrived. Pippa Stevens joins us now with that story. MIFT is, is the term, I guess. MIFT, yes. Enter the MIFT. Doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily as Fang, but still. And it stands for the Metals Important for Future Technologies dubbed by Bank of America, which also said they're the heroes of net zero. Lithium gets all the attention these days, but the group includes a whole lot more. Think copper and aluminum to nickel, boron, cobalt, zinc, and graphite, among others. Now, estimates vary widely for just how much of each material will need, but the IEA forecasts that hitting net zero globally by 2050 will require six times more mineral inputs by 2040. Major miners like Glencore, Rio, and Vale are entering some of these new and smaller markets, but we've also seen up-and-coming companies who want to take advantage of this expected demand boom. And that includes here in the U.S. amid this big push behind reshoring. MP Materials has a rare earth site out in California, and then much smaller names and pre-production names to watch include 5E Advanced Materials for Boron and Talon for Nickel. On the lithium side, there's Albemarle, of course, Piedmont, and Lithium Americas, Kelly, among other names. And co- would you say copper is still the one? I mean, that one I feel like has hit the mainstream where mm-hmm. kind of people look at for the free ports of the world and they say it, copper is the key technology here. And I almost want to say they feel like the trade can't go wrong, which makes me a little nervous. You know, at the end of the day, the thing about commodities, they always seem to generate just as much supply as is necessary to keep the prices from ever really sustainably breaking out over the long run. I think lithium's the kind of sexy side of this, and copper is the what underlines everything. True. Because copper is electrification, and the energy transition is electrification. So ergo, copper is is what's key. And I think that it's just not seen as, you know, as snazzy as a cool market. But think about transmission. Think about EVs. EVs require two and a half times more copper than an ICE vehicle. Wow. So all of these new technologies require copper. And I think also it's going to be interesting to see if we do see some a slowdown in demand from like the old economy, to what extent will this new economy, Absolutely. you know, m- meet, meet copper demand halfway? Right. So that will certainly be something to watch. And is it still Dr. Copper? 
up? You know, is it still a good <laughs> indicator? That's always what I'm obsessed with. Pippa, thank you very much, Pippa Stevens. And sticking with EVs, Redwood Materials announcing it received a $2 billion loan from the Department of Energy to accelerate domestic production of a key battery component. Joining us now to discuss is J.B. Straubel, CEO of Redwood Materials and former chief technology officer at Tesla, along with our very own Phil LeBeau. Great to have you guys both here. Phil, kick things off. Thank you, Kelly. JB, uh, I know you just made the announcement regarding the $2 billion loan. And I think the big question a lot of people have is, with this loan, how much will it accelerate the production of the cathode and anode materials needed for battery cells here in this country? Well, thanks, Phil. It's great to be back here. And, and this is incredibly helpful uh, to accelerate these projects. These are very capital-intensive projects. And uh, we're in a competition with Asia to ramp this up and to bring these uh, supply chains and these manufacturing operations back to the U.S. So having the strong support, the, the continual support and a strong industrial policy from the U.S. government, the federal government, um, is pivotal and this will accelerate us. You know, most of the raw materials in the battery cells that are manufactured in this country, they're coming from Asia, coming from overseas. How quickly does that change? I know you're working to change that, but realistically, when will we see more sourced here in country? Well, we're, we're having an interesting project here where we blend recycled material, which is essentially almost urban mining. We're able to incrementally add new sources of these raw materials, these same critical materials, copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt, uh, from products we already have in the country. And we can mix that, we blend it with sustainably mined material. So this is already beginning to ramp up, but we have a long way to go. Um, the U.S. Uh, battery demand and the EV demand is, is growing at a phenomenal pace, which is great to see. But we have a long way before that supply chain is uh, predominantly you know, moved to the U.S. And as you know, JB, this is the main reason why EVs are so expensive. For automakers to be profitable on them, they've got to make up the cost of the battery packs, the battery cells, which are so high right now. When does that price come down? Are we looking 25, 26 when you can say, okay, we see more affordably priced EVs in your opinion? Well, I, I, I think it's a tale of two stories. You know, people are getting better and better at mass producing batteries and EVs. So the, that component of the cost is continuing to drop. On the other hand, there's so much pressure on these same commodities that those commodity prices are volatile and still trending upwards. So right now they're, they're somewhat counteracting each other. Um, I do think in the long term we're going to, to see that same dynamic continuing for, for quite a few years to come. So I, I, I wish we could get to even cheaper EVs. You know, we're doing our part in that by trying to help reduce those raw materials costs by recycling more of them. But uh, it's going to be a long transition where we go from maybe 2-3% of our fleet being electric to 80-90% over the coming decades. And California, as Phil had reported, is now seeing Model Y as one of its top sellers. JB, thanks again for your time and for joining us. I have a question. I went to trade in or, or buy a new iPhone the other day, and my old one had pretty significant trade-in value, which surprised me. Um, and I, I joked, well, I, you know, I don't want to turn it in. You know, my data's on it. Can I, can I pound it with a sledgehammer? And they said, you can do whatever you want to it as long as you don't hurt the battery. And is, are companies like yours the reason why that battery is the most important um, and valuable part of that iPhone and the reason why they're, they're worth so much right now? Well, there, there are a lot of valuable materials in that, that old phone or that old uh, you know, electronic device that, that so many people have. And you know, part of our vision is to you know, build the processes, make them very sustainable and scale them so we can recover that value, take advantage of it, and deliver it back to the customers, uh, some of what you're seeing. 
um, you know, the customers can benefit at end of life after owning the product. But the battery is, is a safety issue as well. So yeah, you don't want to smash your battery with a sledgehammer. You can <laughs> definitely cause a, a fire or a short circuit there. I, I don't own a sledgehammer, but I could certainly come up with ways, <laughs> I, I guess, drive over it with a car or something. Um, let me turn, JB, since we have you, and just ask you about Tesla for a moment. Um, shares had collapsed into the end of last year. They're on this massive run right now, but people are wondering, even as we get these accolades about Model Y top selling car in California, if it's kind of becoming just another automaker, um, could you just weigh in on the valuation of Tesla and what you think the potential is for this industry, which does see saturation, which is starting to feel a little bit less sexy, frankly, now that it's gone more mainstream? Well, I'm not connected with Tesla anymore, but uh, you know, I, I do think Tesla is, is more than just a car maker. You know, they have obviously a, a huge range of different products, and I think a really exciting roadmap ahead of them. Um, you know, there, there's not always complete logic in, in the, the public markets and how people value and price things, but um, you know, I, I believe Tesla has an incredible future ahead of it, and uh, we're really just getting started in this whole transition. Even though the cycles of incredible excitement and, and, and maybe you know a little more you know caution um, kind of go up and down. I think it's useful to look at what percent of the cars on the road today are actually electric. You know, that, that to me is really what highlights how much more market growth is ahead of companies like Tesla and others as they electrify. Yeah, JB, you're in touch with all of the automakers and you know what their plans are. Are they investing enough as a group in battery production? I know they've made big commitments and announcements, but it almost feels like they need to be making even more when we look beyond 25 into 27, 28, 29. I think you're right. And I, I think overall, this industry and it needs to make even bigger moves you know, to try and hit some of these sustainability goals. Um, we're making dramatic commitments across the whole industry, OEMs, battery manufacturers, and parts of the supply chain. But the level of investment needed you know, to electrify the whole fleet is staggering. It's uh, hundreds of billions of dollars across the whole industry. Um, and I think today we're seeing that uh, weighted heavily toward the EV uh, manufacturing efforts and battery manufacturing efforts, partly because of the Inflation Reduction Act accelerating those investments. But we need to see, I think, more investment moving into the supply chain side of that, you know, to balance out uh, and make sure that we're not overly reliant on importing all of those components and materials. Quickly, uh, JB, you know the uh, IRA, the EV incentive, half of it goes for if the vehicle is manufactured in the U.S. The other half goes to if the battery cell, the battery pack, and the components are sourced here in North America. Uh, and there's very few that can qualify for that end of it. Are we likely to see people getting that type of EV credit anytime soon, or is that more likely 25, 26 when we finally see people getting that uh, ability to get that credit? Well, the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, are extremely difficult. And, um, you know, my understanding is they were that way by design. And I don't think we will see everyone getting those incentives. Some people will, though. And, you know, projects like this one we're announcing here um, are fully IRA compliant. You know, these materials are made in the U.S. They're largely made with recycled materials, which also qualify as, you know, domestically sourced materials. So uh, it is possible to get these incentives. but. They're, they're a challenge, and it requires the industry and it requires uh, battery makers to adjust their supply chain. So that, that's happening. It's underway, but uh, it's going to take a bit of time before every vehicle, every OEM can fully capture them. Sure.
J.B. Straubel, founder and CEO of Redwood Materials, joining us today from the company's plant in Sparks, Nevada. J.B., thank you very much. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. A huge thanks to both of you as well, J.B. Straubel and our own Phil LeBeau. And the debate around the impact of China's reopening is ongoing, but economist Jim O'Neill says it's looking especially encouraging for the global economy. He'll join us with that take coming up on Power Lunch, and I'll join Tyler Matheson for that. There he is getting ready. Tyler, I'll see you on the other side of this quick break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.